welcome to Forward Launch Your SaaS. I'm Kira Woodard, the podcast marketer and owner of Forward Launch. In this series, I sit down with executives whose marketing campaigns have resulted in impressive growth for their startups. In each episode, our guests talk about the one biggest piece of wisdom that they would share with other B2B SaaS marketing execs. Hey, today I'm sitting down with Niels, who is the CEO of contractbook.com. Uh, he feels very strongly about brand building um, and learning about people and performance. Uh, and he is going to tell us a little bit about how he built his SaaS company contract book. So I'm so glad to have you on the podcast today, Niels. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah. So how and why did you get into like growing and founding this company? I did that to two people. My story is that I worked at Shell Oil, <laughs> so one of the big evil companies of the world. I was very bored. Uh, I was very, very bored there. And I basically, you know, I was implementing an ASAP system all over the Nordics and I had 18 months to do it. And I did it in nine and then I quit and uh, went back to studying. And while studying my master's degree, I figured out, okay, you know, I'm going to be a startup kind of person. And then I raised money for my first startup while doing my master's degree or my thesis. And then I moved into building companies. I've been doing it ever since. Only had one real job. Uh, so uh, it started with with me not being very satisfied with the team that was recruited by the HR department in Shell mm -hmm. for me. So I was like, I need to work with people that I like working with. And I can only control that if I control the company and thereby I build great cultures and I create something that makes sense for me to be in because I love working, I love people. So I just want to figure out how to build that. That makes a lot of sense. Maybe you kind of thought about what you could improve from your last job and then kind of took that forward into your entrepreneurial journey. I think I did. I think I, I had a lot of I had a lot of experiences uh, in my in in my one real job, and we work with contract management. It's not the most sexy thing in the world. Like it's actually pretty boring. But I think that it's a it's a it's a place where all our employees, the whole team, they can actually see that they can change the world. They can see how they can change how people work because it's not being reformed yet, or redefined yet, and therefore it may it's interesting. It's a bit like building Legos or building anything. Like you can do whatever you want in this space. It's not already defined, and I think that's what's interesting, and that's what motivates people to. Go to work is having impact and it's what motivates me it's what i like doing and, and there is a lot of learnings but it is mostly around people actually like everything for me starts and ends around people so how long ago did you start your company and how has it grown since then so we started we raised our pre-seed in 17 late 17 and we now raised series seed with gradient ventures and then we raised series a with Bessemer ventures and then we raised the uh, series b with tiger global basically kind of erased series c a b from late 19 to early 21 and we're 141 employees and we have 28 different nationalities 60 percent of our employees are working remotely on a daily basis uh, we have clients in 100 countries offices in copenhagen new york it sounds like it's going well so what would you say is the biggest insight that allowed you to grow your company? So the biggest insight is that from day one, we were super focused on building a product that had basically a built-in demand strategy into it. Mm -hmm. So Contract Book has for every, basically we have like, we, we speak about a something we call a K factor. And the K factor is that how many, like how many users does one user invite? And we always cared a lot about that because that basically creates exponential growth that every user you sell to invite 
provide a new user that you can then market your product to. So it becomes way more about the product experience, the activation and making sure that people send documents and share documents and sign documents that the actual users are happy. And then it becomes about a what you would call, in our opinion, what we call so classic marketing. You have a user journey. And then we also have what we call a recipient journey. And the recipient journey basically goes into the user journey at the point. So it's not two separate things, but it kind of is just a detour of the user journey. And then we hope to basically show the value why you should use Contract Book as a recipient that then make them consider buying or using Contract Book mm-hmm. instead of paying for classical demand in the market. Okay, interesting. So what gave you the idea to even try that? And you did it from day one, right? So but I think we were super pro to prog focus. So as you said, we can speak pretty candid here, right? Candidly here. But I think they won one of my clients in my old digital studio. He asked me, so there's a problem with this SMB segment for contracts. There's something wrong here. It doesn't work. Like it's not like like the PDF signature stuff. Like it's stupid. It doesn't make any sense. Like, and I was like, I, I, I could see that. I lost some money on investment due to like formal signing the wrong papers and stuff. And I was like, oh, that's right. And he said, you're good at solving problems. How would you solve that? And we're sitting and drinking coffee like a Sunday night. And I was mm-hmm. like, Hmm. Right, so this is a very classical kind of startup story. And I was like, I think I would say fuck the president. I would just say whatever people did before for the last 30 years, who cares? I was like, he would look at me. What do you mean? I was like, well, the PDF is like from a- in the 80s. I know now it's from the 80- 84. Word is also kind of in the 90s, 80s product. Did it like DocuSign is from 2004. And mm-hmm. I was like, it seems odd that we were focusing on product. Like we're in 2000, mid 2000, you know, tens. Are using all these products, you know, from the 80s and 90s? Like we're, we, we haven't developed on this space yet. So and and you would never, like, you wouldn't build on top of today. Like, like it's not like Tesla isn't built on top of a diesel engine, you know, and, and the iPhone isn't built on top of a, a, a CD-ROM. It's a completely different technology. Right. And I was like, I think we need to rethink the technology. And then we, so we started basically saying, okay, contract is database that we make look like a document. So instead of having a classical document that you need to extract data from, we actually make it a database that we make look like a, a document. And then we can use the data from they won without OCR, AI, ML, and all these fancy buzzwords that people use. But you can basically just build automations on top of the code, the zeros and ones that all computers can read. And then you can build it into all the platforms. And then it become became kind of a mission. So now our biggest internal marketing thing is called death to PDF. So mm-hmm. we have like boxing balls and all the, all the merch you get. It's not about contract book, it's death to PDF. So it becomes mm-hmm. like a mission for Gen Z and millennials who don't like the PDF. So they have like a bigger thing they're working for. For. So from a marketing angle, we don't use that for marketing outside, but with something we do to kind of create the hype and the culture internally. Yeah, I like that. The the slogan, death to PDF, and that journey of thinking, well, let's just forget about everything it's been doing for the past couple of decades regarding this. And let's just kind of start from scratch. I think they call that innovating from first principles. And I remember reading a story that that's what Elon Musk did to build some rocket ships, like with SpaceX. They just completely from first principle said, like, if we were to start over building a rocket ship, how would we do it? And they ended up being able to, I could be remembering this wrong, but I think they built a new rocket ship, like from scratch that costs like 10% of what it it would typically cost to build a rocket ship. (laughs) 
Yeah, but yeah. Th- th- that's the thing is that that's the thing is like, I think I read an article, not that article, but read something about NASA as well, that they were using the same technology as they did in, 60, in the 60s. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. NASA was basically just, it was the same computers, like it was the same infrastructure. Right. And, you know, that doesn't make a lot of sense taking into consideration the actual infrastructure we have today. So I think it's the same thing. Is like, if you just accept that the data format in a contract in a PDF is dead, which mm-hmm. it is, like it's dead in multiple layers, basically. So every time you PDF, another PDF, and then a signature, and then you PDF it again, you know, you kill the data every time you do it, like you make it completely dead. And that was kind of, how do you figure out how to build something? So we didn't know what we wanted to build, use the data for when we started. We just knew that we needed to build it in a data format. And mm-hmm. then we needed, knew that we wanted the, the go-to-market strategy to build, build around the recipients of the documents. Right. And we could allow all our recipients to get great usage and we can store all the documents for all the recipients forever because they didn't fill anything, like no gigabytes because it wasn't pictures like the PDF is. We could, like it's zeros and ones, so it doesn't fill it. We don't care. The whole theory was that we can give everybody, we could democratize this kind of space and we can make everybody get a great experience. And then the ones who want to pay can pay because they actually send enough documents or want to create value. So it is about not charging for signatures and storage, but actually charging for the value of the automation you build so you reduce manual labor. Interesting. We don't we don't charge for signatures. We charge we don't charge for storage. We don't charge for the creation tool, like which is the editor. We charge for the manual job you don't have to do. How we free up your hands to do other stuff. That's very interesting. You built into your product some kind of mechanism to make it go viral from day one. So you focused on the the recipients of the documents, not even just the senders of the documents, and you made the experience seamless for everybody. And then you leverage that in order to get people to share contract book more. Mm-hmm. How did you leverage it? How did you hack that and make people want to, to sign more people up, if that makes any sense? It automatically happens because if you give like, people sign up and buy a contract book or sign up free to use it for sending documents or sharing documents in some instances. And every time they do that, they invite a new uh, user to the platform that then either accepts terms or not. Oh, and I if see. they accept terms and want to share, they can download as a pdf and be like boomers or they can you know go into the 21st century and then do it like normal people would do it it's yeah. it's a bit like you know me sharing a mirror talk to you and you downloading as a powerpoint show or something that doesn't make any sense like, right. like, like so people accept it like people are like yes i want to collaborate in a platform that makes sense like online that makes a lot of sense so most people basically just accept terms it's like hey yes i want to see my documents and then i can sign it and obviously i can offload myself off the, con- off the platform afterwards if i want to but we try and tend to show enough value that mm-hmm. people say, oh, this now I understand why this is not like a PDF or now I understand why this is not like. So imagine when you receive a document or contract book, it automatically reads through your dates and then it suggests tasks on top of these dates. Like you get a, and then it says, hey, like we just noticed you got this contract you signed. Did you know there's these two dates that you should remember? Mm-hmm. And then it says, do you want to create the task? And then when it creates the task, it automatically reactivates you in the platform in three months or half a year or a year and you see right. the value come back that's smart if I had that on all my contracts I wouldn't forget all my deadlines like right. that would be nice like so so you can kind of introduce them to the features in a very simple way where you show value from day one in a unscary way or something like which just doesn't feel intrusive yeah that makes a lot of sense people sign up for the platform and then they get so many free documents that they can send right yeah free documents are sent for free forever and then all the people they invite to see those documents have the option to either download as PDF or sign up to contract up to book where they get all the benefits of task management and all the other yeah. ways that you slice up data to make it useful for them. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So it's all about, in a sense, using 
like displaying sort of the value up front to these new users and like building in something into your product so that it makes sense for for people who come across your product to want to try your way or try your product as opposed to doing things the old way. Yeah, so so the trick for us has always been figuring out how to. So we've been working for a long time making our database structure look like a PDF. Mm. And now we come to a maturity point where we're actually going the other way. Now we want to expose them for the power of contract book. Now they trust the platform. Now we want to figure out how to expose them for the power of the platform. But mm. just, so it's a tricky U-curve, I would say. It's a tricky U-curve because first you want to build the trust yeah. that it looks like a PDF, but it's actually not a PDF, but it looks like a PDF. And then when you go to the, on the other side of the PDF, basically what you want to do is like make everything look like a matrix, make the data live. You're like, wow, this is smart. But they need to get a top of the U-curve to actually trust it enough to do it, to, to be aware and be able to absorb the different way of doing it. Do you have any tricks on like how you sort of promote that? So you're trying to manage this, like introducing people to essentially this new way of using contracts. So it's this new technology. They don't even know like the power of the usability of the way that you're, you're using this data. So how are you managing displaying that value to users and like introducing them to your brand and to your platform and kind of getting them engaged in all of this? I I don't think we aced it yet. Um, I think <laughs> we're constantly working on sharpening our tools and figuring out what we do. Uh, I think for us, it's always been about thinking that what got us here is not going to is not going to get us there. I've basically every six, nine, twelve, eighteen months basically reevaluate the stack of cards we have and just figure out: Do we have the right setup? Like to for the next eighteen months? Like do we like are we happy with the setup we have? And reevaluating in a marketing position has always been like we were very focused on. CEO for a while and did very like, quantitative CEO, figure it out. Then we start working very qualitative towards kind of uh, the, the certain markets and that didn't work well. And then we figured out, okay, let's take a more ICP heavy approach basically. And then say, okay, who's our ICP? How do we make that work like solely? And now we're turning into a more kind of go-to-market focused approach where we say, this is our core markets. This is our core pains we solve in that market. This is the solution we're building for these markets. And this is our competitors and understanding it and being very clear in our communication in core markets where we've been having a very broad approach us having 500,000 users in 100 countries. That's a very broad approach. And now we're saying, okay, with all this data, where do we like our chances the best? Like, mm -hmm. like what do we know with all this? So we took a very quantitative approach to it. And now we're kind of sh sh narrowing it down and saying, okay, we cannot be sales and product led anymore. Now we need to have a go-to-market, like we're mature for a go-to-market motion. It was mm -hmm. also because the market itself has matured. COVID, mm. et cetera, has kind of pushed our maturity a couple of years, in my opinion. It started as a very qualitative experience. It became a, a quantitative experience and then now turning into a very qualitative experience. Your main insight that marketers could use was to build something into your product from day one, if possible, that allows you to have a go-to-market strategy sort of baked in to your product and your user experience. So if you were to give kind of a step by step rundown of how other people could implement this what would be kind of the steps there's only one step right mm. it's it's actually doing it day one so it's like like it's thinking it into day one and, and knowing what 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 you want to build and it, but it's like miro or mural and all these kind of collaboration platforms have really nailed it like they nailed mm. how to do it and it's not so it becomes taking a very active decision and saying i want to have free users or i want to build a user base on this so we have maybe a thousand paying logos and we have 500 
100,000 users. It becomes like for us, it's, it was never about the local count. It was actually figuring out when do we have enough locals for this. Like, like my assumption would be at a thousand locals, it exponentially grows like this with users. But it actually mm-hmm. already happened at 400 locals. But it's because the step was so that was the hypothesis. So like, what you're asking is how what's the steps? And in my opinion, it's the step in the planning. So if you when before you even start building anything, the product, if you want to take that approach, is like what is our user journey? Who are our users? How do we want to invite them? Do we want to give them free? Like, like how can we live with giving it away free for a while? It requires a lot of cash. Like because you're not going to make a lot of money to start with because you need to get the reality of them running. But it's a cheap product. It's a fairly cheap product that needs a lot of users to generate more users. Like, mm. like so you need to think about that. So it's going to be a slow start and a steep curve. Right. And your investors and the, the man, like your stakeholder management needs to be, they need to understand this and, and be okay with it and say, so the expectation is the first 18 months, it's going to be very low paying users who's sending some docs who fits into ICP, who's going to invite more clients in our ICP, who's going to be happy with it, who's going to spread the brand, spread the word of mouth. And then you can see it taking off. Think through sort of the user journey, think through how they, how you can build in some kind of mechanism. So it makes sense for people to share, or it's just automatically shared with new people uh, and then kind of leverage that word of mouth so, spread to make it grow even more. Yeah. So in, in contract book, for example, you have, you have multiple different areas of sharing a document. So you can share a document, you can share a task, you can share collaboration, like in, in, in negotiation, you can share a signature, you can share and upload a document. You can do a lot of different shares mm. where you can invite. So it's not only signatures. So finding multiple angles where you can uh, inviting new clients, potential mm. clients who can get the experience. Or we're not pushing it down anybody's throat. Right, we're just right. introducing it to a different way of doing business. Yeah. So it's not just one big share button. There's you thought yeah. through what are all the ways or what are all the situations that people might want to share. So let's say I'm a marketer and I'm working at a SaaS and a B2B SaaS and it's like a couple years into already being developed. So it's too late for the product people to start <laughs> from first principles. But yeah. I, I know that I want to try some kind of virality mechanism or I want to harness that as much as possible. What advice would you give me in order to do that? I think I should have learned quicker that I should set down like a task force, a small department of the business mm-hmm. or a group of people who could be a kind of a moving organism to solve the recipient experience and focus on it solely every day, every morning, every night, you know, somebody like, because it became kind of founder driven a bit in the product and a bit in the, like it wasn't owned by anybody before now. Like it got owned too late. And if we had more focus on it and leveraged it before, I think we would have more success quicker with it. And I think that I waited too long with, because I was like, we hit a certain place where it's like around 25,000 recipients per quarter, new recipients per quarter. And I was like, okay, now it's enough. Now we're going to double down on it. But in reality, I could have done down on it when there was 5,000 recipients per quarter. Mm-hmm. And then I would probably have hit 25 faster, but I was focusing more on product sales and, and sales that grows on mm-hmm. product side instead of the actual Im- embedded go-to-market move. Mm-hmm. So I think that I focused, we focused on it always. It was spread out focus. So narrow your focus to think earlier on about your user experience and try to optimize that and try to see where are the places within your product 
product that you can leverage that kind of sharing. Yes, exactly. If it's multiple people's responsibility, it quickly becomes nobody's responsibility, right? Right. And uh, so saying, hey, you're in charge of the recipient experience. Come to me and talk about it when you have issues. I want to figure out how we can leverage this. I want to figure out how to make this better. And this is probably a product product market team like, who's like in gathering the insights, understanding that people in the UK or people in North Carolina or people in San Francisco, they really, really love this thing. And if we just make that a bit better, it's going to explode. Everybody's going to use it because apparently they do business in a way that makes that happen. Or, you know, that, yeah, that's very kind of meta and not very precise, but it, do you get me? And like that, if you have somebody who's really researching, understanding, like what is anybody doing? Why are they doing it? Like, that's odd. Like, I thought this would be great. And that, like, nobody wants to negotiate, but everybody wants to share tasks or something. Mm. Then we need yeah. to drop developing negotiation tool and then only do task management or something. I don't know emphasize the sharing of task management even more. So do you have any examples of when you guys have implemented that or some specific tactics that can make that kind of customer research successful? For us, we started leading it led by product and I think it needs to be led commercially. I don't think product has the insights to understand that that's not their core business. Like I think that commercial people have a better idea of the opportunities there is in the market if you need to use this as a go-to-market play. Otherwise, it becomes very binary, basically. It's like, hey, when to create leads so we need to um, figure out how to get people to accept terms and conditions the goal isn't to get 100 people to accept terms and conditions the, the goal is to get 10 opportunities I think that product would get 100 terms and conditions and not care about the opportunities because they don't get it they don't work with it so you need somebody who's closer to actually converting the opportunities to sales right. like who understands that part of the funnel better so for me when I work and think about it now I think about the bottom of the funnel more than I think about the top of the funnel but that's a luxury I have because I have enough top funnel in mm-hmm. the product. But the fact is, if we figured out the bottom of the funnel, you know, a year ago or two years ago, we would convert like crazy people at this point, right? With the top of the funnel. And we're waiting. But but my my thing was that I didn't, I guess I didn't dare putting that much focus on it before I knew I had enough top funnel too. And I, now I can see that I should have done it, you know, years ago. Easy to see and, you know, look back and, and, and see that, that that what you did wrong, right? Yeah, I think that's, that's kind of a tricky trade-off, right? Because obviously you need customers using your product in order for you to make sales, but you need really good conversion. So you need people to like it and you need them to want to buy. So you have mm. to have those conversion pathways built in, or you can have a million people come and nobody buys. What was the point? Exactly. So, so I mean, in our kinds of business, when you have the, the traffic that we have from recipients, it's literally so few percentage. And I guess point something that just moves the needle. I think if we convert with our sales matrix, if we convert just to put it into perspective, if you built this stuff in, right? Uh, Obviously, you don't have the full picture of all the numbers, but if we built in, if we convert 0.6% or something like that, like around 2% of recipients to opportunities, that is equal to half of our revenue, new revenue next year which is a very substantial amount of money when we're kind of like, you know, it's a half of our revenue, which is a very substantial amount of dollars, like dollar amount, like like a lot of a lot of zeros is going to come from recipients. And that's on a 2% margin. It's not, you know, 50% that we need to convert to opportunities. It's less than 2%. So that kind wow. of shows you the power of it. Like that's pretty insane in my opinion. When I looked at the numbers, I was like, we don't have to kind of read, like it's not reading a whole book. 
we just need to turn a page and then we're there. Yeah, it, that is interesting. So you identified like this one metric that you could focus on that's going to get you like an outsized return, right? Mm. <laughs> so how, how did you even think to start focusing on that? And do you have any tips on what other people could do to see if there are really good leverage points like that in their own businesses? I think there's so many factors that plays into that, that it's not one question because one, it requires a lot of top funnel recipients. It requires an ACV. We tripled our ACV over the past year. So mm-hmm. it, it requires that the top funnel is enough, that the ACV is the right size, the conversion rates, like your sales cycle is, is the right one. So it's like it's multiple factors that plays in. Um, mm-hmm. It's not just, you know, if this converts, then you're happy. It, you know that as well as me. Like there's so many factors that goes through a, a sales and a, like a sales motion in the funnel that if our, if our ACV was three times, like three times lower than it is now, then we would need 6% and not 2% most likely, right? If we increase the ACV a bit, like with 20 to 25%, then we most likely only will need 1.5% next year of converting that. So understanding your unit economics, and that's also why I'm saying that this should be led by a commercial person because the commercial person would have focused on the unit economics and understand how it all connects from a business angle and then be more kind of black and white and say, we don't need this. We don't need this because this plays no role. And this plays a huge role. Quite often you get caught in random development where you're like, oh, I think our onboarding something, something, or I think our profile setting should be a lot better, right? And then it's like, it doesn't, you know, the return of investment of that is fairly low uh, compared to some of the stuff here that you where it really moves a needle for you, basically, as I just said, most companies are struggling. Like when we're competing as a SaaS company for marketing or demand, we're competing with all SaaS platforms in the world on noise. We're all trying to make noise. We're all trying to make content. We're all trying to do SEO. We're all trying to do white papers. We're all trying to do whatever. Like we're all yeah. trying, we're all doing the same. We have the same moves. So we have one move that most people don't have. And that's the one that we need to leverage. Yeah, not not every type of company could do something like designing their product in such a way that it's automatically shared and kind of onboards new years users just based on that. It's very kind of product specific in terms of kind of it needs to be something where people collaborate or social or something like that, where it makes sense for people to add like value. Because it's not pure networks effect, because networks effect would be by every user you invite, the platform becomes better. That's not mm-hmm. how it is. Facebook becomes back in the days, they had a super high K factor. Facebook became better and better and better because there was more and more feed stuff going on people's feeds. So it was in it became it became interesting. If I we were friends, I invite you and then you share pictures. Then Facebook is a better place for me. So I mean I incentivize to actually invite you. People are not incentivized to invite people to contract book. So it needs mm-hmm. to be more of need or ease, I would assume. Probably ease is better than need, where it just becomes easier for them to work with you if they invite you to the platform. Okay. So optimize the the onboarding experience and the, the user experience throughout for making it easy. Actually, also the activation, because yeah. it needs to be easier for the first sender. The first sender needs to think it would be a lot easier to use this than DocuSign an email. Right. They need, this, if, yeah, they need to think, the sender needs to think this is way easier than Word, DocuSign, email, power Right. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Well, thank you, Niels. This was super helpful and informative. Uh, And as we wrap up, I'd really like to shine a spotlight on you. So any projects you're working on, anything you'd like people to know and anywhere that you'd like people to get in touch with you? Yeah. So, you know, we're recruiting like crazy people in contract books. So if anybody want to work in a very, in either out of our Copenhagen or European office or out of a US office in New York, you know, you should look us up and see if you're, you know, looking for a job where you can get high autonomy 
great impact and uh, all that stuff. And yeah, you should look up in contract book. We have contractbook.com. We are always recruiting at this point. So uh, there's a lot of open positions. So uh, yeah, feel free to look us up if you're looking at We're also looking for marketeers. All right. Well, thank you so much, Niels. It was great hearing your story. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for allowing me. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Forward Launch Your SaaS. If you'd like summaries, show notes, transcripts, downloads, and other helpful links and resources to help you implement the tactics you've heard here, then you can one, go to forwardlauncherSaas.com and two, subscribe to our email newsletter. Lastly, don't forget to share this podcast with your friends, colleagues, and neighbors and head over to iTunes to leave us a rating and review. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.